From WHQR Public Media, this is the Newsroom. Welcome. I'm Ben Schachman. Thank you for joining us. Coming up on today's show, we'll talk about the perils of developing in the Island Creek watershed in the northern part of New Hanover County. But first, I want to talk about housing. For that, I've brought in our expert housing reporter, Kelly Knoyer. Hey, Ben. Hey, Kelly. So you've covered the perils of the housing market for years now at this point. We've talked about rent and home prices and gentrification and homelessness and so on and so forth. Yeah, the most telling stat to me is that the average rent went up 53% in Wilmington in six years. And I think it's pretty obvious that wages have not gone up 53% in that time. I think we would have noticed that. But that is really good context. And to a large degree, it's explained by the shortage of housing in the community. It's a well-documented problem, and New Hanover County issued a report on the issue back in 2021 that projected a need for 23,000 more housing units before 2025, which is just two years from now. And to be clear, we have not met that demand. Yeah, it's rough out there. And we're lacking buildable land in this county, which you'll get to later with development plans in the north. But before that, we've covered all these elements of the housing market, but we haven't really dug into what happens when you fall through the cracks in that market. Eviction. Eviction. I've done some research and I plan to have some stories with updated data in July, but it's worth saying now, the eviction moratorium from the pandemic is well over and landlords have evicted people with abandon since then. The number of statewide eviction filings doubled from financial year 2020 and 2021 to financial year 21 to 22. Okay, those are kind of staggering numbers. Is that just a buildup of eviction cases from during the moratorium when landlords couldn't push out tenants? I'm waiting on new data to find the answer to that, which we'll get to in July. But I can see that the number of filings far outweighs the dip in filings that we saw during that pandemic era. So stay tuned to the radio station in early July for an update on whether that pattern continues. Okay, we will stay tuned. Um, Do we know who tends to get evicted? Well, the most common cause of eviction, according to Princeton University's eviction lab, is non-payment. The renters who are most vulnerable are those who live in poverty or at the margins of society. And it matters because evictions tend to follow you like a scarlet letter. Once you've been evicted, reputable landlords are much less likely to rent to you. And that traps you in a cycle of low quality and overpriced housing. Yeah, that is rough. And let me guess, are there racial disparities here? Yes. Black and Latino renters are much more likely to face eviction filings than white renters. And there are gender disparities, too. Women face evictions at higher rates than men. That maps pretty cleanly onto the economic disparities in the U.S. Women tend to make less money than men, and those minority groups make less money than their white counterparts. Yep. And eviction is really a misery multiplier. It destabilizes families, and it can cause cascading effects. For example, if your family member runs into hard times and is evicted, you might decide to let them stay on your couch for a while. Of course. Cousin Greg just lost his job. I'd be happy to lend a hand or a couch. Yeah, we love Cousin Greg. But your lease says you can't have guests for more than one consecutive week. That means your own landlord can now file an eviction on you. And maybe, because of the tight housing market, they'd be looking for an excuse to get you out mid-lease so they can increase rent and hand it over to a new tenant. Ouch. Yeah. It's also worth noting that most tenants do not have any legal representation during these proceedings. It's not like criminal court where you have a right to an attorney. It's a civil court proceeding. According to the ACLU, only 3% of renters are represented nationwide, compared to 81% of landlords on average. Yeah, that is pretty uneven. I know some cities have started giving tenants a right to counsel for eviction proceedings, but that's not the case in North Carolina. And that counsel makes an impact. 
According to the ACLU, New York City's right to counsel has meant that 84% of represented renters facing eviction have remained in their homes. And look, that 16%, that's important because we're not saying it's never legitimate for a landlord to evict someone. There are some landlords who do a good job. They maintain nice properties and have tenants who simply don't pay, or worse, do significant damage to the place. Not like spilling a soda on the rug, like tens of thousands of dollars in damage. And in those cases, yeah, landlords should have every right to evict the tenant. But if there's a major shift in the eviction rate, and the only change is that tenants have counsel, then that seems to indicate, at least to me, that maybe the reasons for evictions aren't always fair. That's why it's kind of key to understand your rights and your legal agreements when you're a renter. It's becoming more important than ever. When I decided to interview an attorney about eviction, I asked all the young renters in our newsroom what they knew about eviction beforehand, and it was very little. Their questions and their confusion are what guided this interview. All right, sounds good. Let's listen. Bradley Setzer, staff attorney at Legal Aid of North Carolina, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, glad to be here. So I think most people have a kind of movie understanding of eviction. Like you get home, you see the eviction notice on the door, and you don't know what to do. Is that an accurate depiction of what eviction is like for a person? Oh, most certainly. Uh, a lot of folks in the course of, of their rental lives hopefully will never go through the eviction process. Uh, but when it happens, it, it usually is a it's almost like a, a slap of reality in the face that you're like, oh, this is real. This is not something that happens in the movies or just in the movies or just on TV. And a lot of folks don't know what to do. The notice that you get from the courts actually says uh, with an exclamation point, you're being sued. And, and people see it and they're like, oh, no, like, what do I do? What can I, what can I do? And even those folks who are, as quote unquote, sophisticated, uh, folks who um, maybe have been in the court system before for other things or who are, are well read or well versed on the legal system, it's still a scary process prospect because they don't spend their time every day in court like an attorney would or even like a lot of landlords do. So when it does happen, yeah, it's really scary and a lot of people freak out and don't quite know what to do or what their rights may be. And they do have rights that they have uh, through the judicial process related to the eviction. So a lot of times it seems like a surprise in those depictions, right? So are landlords required to warn you before they move towards the eviction process? Or can they just surprise you with a legal notice like that? The greatest answer you ever get from any attorney is always, it depends. And that's the truth here as well. A majority of leases are going to speak to what notice requirement a landlord has to give before they file. Um, usually you're going to see something along the lines of, you know, if you don't pay, you have to get, you know, a 10 or 30 day notice. If you have violated your lease in some way, your landlord has to give you some sort of notice that, hey, you've done this thing that you were not supposed to do. And because of it, I'm going to seek an eviction. Uh, if the lease is silent, if it doesn't talk about it, uh, there are statutes in North Carolina that speak to it and require that the person be put on notice that something has gone wrong and that the landlord may be seeking to terminate your lease or is terminating your lease and will seek an eviction if you're not out by a date certain. So usually evictions are uh, forecasted by, uh, by a landlord. And if they're not, there can be some defenses once you get to court. So most landlords are going to forecast that eviction could be filed or will be filed if you're not out by a date certain. Uh, so usually it's not a complete surprise. Um, but also a lot of landlords will hand out notices to vacate like they're candy. 
And a lot of tenants will almost be lulled into a false sense of security that, well, I've gotten this notice before and the landlord didn't file. So it can still be a surprise when it comes to the actual filing because a lot of tenants, even though they realize in the back of their mind this is the possibility, because it's never happened before, it's still a, a far off thing that's never going to happen to them. So say you're this tenant and you get this written notice. Um, what happens next for you in that situation? If I'm a tenant? If you're a tenant. Uh, if I'm a tenant and I get a notice, I'm going to want to pay attention to a couple things. Uh, the, the first thing is the date. There's going to be a date on that notice from the courthouse that says I'm being sued. And also it's going to have um, a location and it's going to have a time on there. And I'm going to want to know all of those things because if I'm not there uh, at that place at that time, then I'm not going to have a chance to defend myself. And it's very important that you, you see all of those things. And that's going to be on the uh, on the first page you get, you're going to get a summons from the court that says when you need to be there. Uh, there's going to be a second page in there that says what the actual uh, reason for the summons is. Uh, and that's going to be a complaint and summary ejectment is what we call evictions in North Carolina. Uh, I will often work with tenants who will say, well, no, no, I'm not being evicted. It's, it's a complaint and summary ejectment. They don't understand that those are the same thing. Uh, you don't really see eviction in North Carolina law. You see complaints in summary ejectment. And that's a fancy legal term that we use when someone is going to be kicked out of their house by their landlord. Uh, and in that complaint and summary ejectment, it's going to list the reasons why your landlord thinks they have a right to remove you and why they believe the court should grant the eviction, should grant the complaint and summary ejectment. Uh, and so those are the two things you look at. You look at the summons that has all the information about where you need to be and when you need to be there. And then you're going to look at the actual complaint that lists out the reason why your landlord is filed. What are the reasons why a landlord could legally evict somebody in North Carolina? Depends on the lease. Uh, the lease is going to lay out what you could do as a tenant to violate that lease. Uh, and the lease is also going to have what your landlord can do to remove you. Um, if you, uh, oral leases are permitted in North Carolina, and if it's an oral lease, then, uh, or if the lease itself that's been written and signed by both parties, if it doesn't actually mention, uh, any reasons for the eviction, uh, for a possible eviction from the landlord to the tenant, uh, then it lays out some base rules like non-payment is a big one. Um, certain, uh, criminal activity can be there. If you're ever looking at a complaint and summary ejectment from the courts, uh, what you're going to find on there are four different reasons for an eviction. Uh, we call it box one is for non-payment. Uh, box two is because your lease just ended and your landlord said, I'm not going to renew. You got to go. So that's a holdover tenant. Box three is if you violate your lease in some way. And so that's, you know, having someone living there is not supposed to be there. Um, non-payment uh, is often listed under a lease as a lease violation itself. Uh, so that can get you kicked out. And the fourth one is for criminal behavior. And there are certain um, criminal actions that can take place either from the tenant or from a tenant's guest uh, that can result in their eviction uh, through the court process. So obviously there are major consequences when you get evicted. You might lose your stuff. You might have to sleep in your car. It's really destabilizing. But what are the legal consequences? So just in general, if a landlord files an eviction against you, it's going to be out there for a future landlord to see. Um, it, if they go and look in the in the system for any civil lawsuits filed against a prospective tenant, if someone has filed an eviction against you, that's going to show up there. Uh, what's also going to show up is if that case was dismissed, uh, if it was granted, if it was appealed and later dismissed. 
Um, so it's, it's going to be out there for someone to see, but that's only if it's filed through the courts. If a landlord just says, get out, and you, you, know, you stay a couple of days over, uh, but then the landlord never files for an eviction, then there's nothing for a future landlord to see because there was nothing filed with the courts. Now, they could call this old landlord and say, hey, how is this person as a tenant? And the landlord could say, oh, man, they stayed two days after, and it was the worst thing ever. Not much you can do about that to stop it, but that's not an eviction. That's just your landlord saying you got to go. And this is also a very good description I want to make right now, is that when a landlord says, I want you to leave, I'm going to give you a notice to vacate, that's not an eviction. That is just a notice that they want to terminate the landlord-tenant relationship with someone. The only time you can say you've been evicted uh, under North Carolina law is when a court filing happens for a complaint and summary ejectment, and a court grants that summary ejectment to the landlord, grants possession of the rental property to the landlord from the tenant. That's when you've been evicted. Until that time happens, you do not have an eviction on your record. Interesting. I know that having an eviction on your record can make it much harder to rent in the future. And I want to get into that. But you mentioned that a landlord can go and see if anything's been filed against you. Is having something filed against you, even if it's dismissed, does that get held against you if you're a tenant? It could. And and this is going to boil down um, to a, a couple of factors. One is how much your prospective landlord, the, the future guy or, or person that you're wanting to rent from, uh, how much they care about it. Because if, if all they want is someone who's never been evicted, then they'll probably understand that filings happen. And so long as there's not an eviction on your record, a complaint and some rejectment that's been granted by the court, then they'll largely not hold that against you. But there are some landlords who get spooked by even a filing because they don't want a tenant in there who could potentially give them cause to file for an eviction. Uh, so yeah, it could be held against you. There's no hard and fast rule. There's, there's nothing set in stone on how a landlord has to treat an eviction. Um, you have people who have you know a dozen evictions on their record, like went through the entire court process, who still find places to live. Uh, and you have some people who get that first eviction on their record or even just a filing, and they may find it difficult uh, looking for a new place because it's going to show up if someone looks for it, that there was a filing. Um, so a lot of it just depends on what a landlord is looking for. Uh, and sometimes that personal relationship you might develop with a future landlord uh, to answer the story of, like, why did this happen? So it, it could impact you. It'll impact a lot worse if you go through the whole summary judgment process and a, and a judge or a magistrate grants the eviction. Um, it, it's always a lot better if you avoid having the judgment on your record. The judgment itself is the most harmful to your reputation as a tenant. It is. And it's the one that's most likely to follow you. Um, a lot of landlords understand that you know things get filed all the time. And there are disagreements. And most landlords just want to see whether or not an actual eviction went through the whole process and, and came out the other side with a judge agreeing with the landlord that an eviction should be granted. What do you broadly see as the impacts for people who end up with an eviction on their record? And how long does it follow them for? It follows for as long as it's relevant for a landlord. Um, it's not like, you know, in criminal law, if you're looking at, uh, you know, past criminal conduct, a lot of times they don't go past 10 years because, you know, you're a completely different person 10 years from now. Um, and, and there are a lot of uh, when you're in law school, that's what you learn about. Like that 10 years is a, is a pretty strong thing. There's nothing in the civil world that uh, uh, that's the same thing. Uh, a landlord could look back really as long as there are court records. Uh, most of them want to go back at least a few years 
uh, to figure out where you are, but a person's financial situation, and that's the most important thing here, um, could go, you know, could change within a month, right? You might not change who you are as a person, but you might change jobs. Uh, so as a tenant, uh, the most important thing is just going to be showing a landlord that if you did have an eviction in the past, that whatever caused that eviction is no longer relevant to you. It's no longer attached to you. Maybe it was not payment. Maybe it was a relative who slept on your couch for a month when they weren't supposed to. Uh, maybe it was, you know, a fight that you had with a boyfriend or a girlfriend that caused you to want to leave and you're not with that person anymore. You know, these are the personal stories that you can tell to a new landlord and, you know, they can look back on it as far as they want to, uh, but it's convincing them that you're now a, a safe tenant that's not going to cause problems, that's going to pay your rent on time. Um, and the longer back, you know, most landlords aren't going to care what happened five years ago because, you know, you're, you're, situation now, it could be completely different. That's interesting. I mean, I wonder whether our really tight housing market has any impact on the relevance of any kind of eviction filing. I mean, if there was a really loose market and there were a lot more apartments than there were tenants looking, I'm sure that it would be easier for a landlord to say, well, maybe they had an eviction five years ago, but it, they're probably fine. I have nobody else who's interested in this apartment. But that is not the case in Wilmington right now. Right now, it's tons of competition between tenants looking for properties to rent. So it seems like that might kind of change the relationship landlords have to to eviction when they look at these kinds of tenants. Have you seen any evidence of that? Yes, it's supply and demand. Uh, the same thing where you know, inflation happens because there aren't enough products and there are more people who want to buy them. You know, there's, you know, I, I don't know what the term for it would be, but almost like a, a tenant landlord inflation where there are far more tenants than there are buildings uh, that can house them. So landlords are going to say, all right, um, it's not always about the money. Sometimes it's about your history and knowing that you're going to be in there for a while and you're going to be, you know, a, a steady stream of income. It, it always comes down to money. That's what all landlord-tenant relationships wind up being uh, because it's a money agreement between two parties. You know, you, I give you money, you give me a place to rest my head, uh, raise my family. So when you have a tighter housing market like we have in Wilmington, yeah, uh, landlords can be a lot more selective in who they choose. And often you find that it, it comes down less to you know money and more to stability. And that landlord believing that the person I'm putting in there is not going to cause me problems, you know, not going to tear the place up, uh, is going to pay the rent on time, uh, but also could renew for several years. Um, I'm sure that's every landlord's dream is to find that tenant who is just going to be there and give them that steady stream of income uh, year in and year out for as long as possible. Uh, and if we had a looser housing market, if we had a lot more supply in the houses and the tenants were more dear, uh, then suddenly landlords would be wanting to attract tenants rather than tenants trying to attract the right landlord. You've been listening to my colleague Kelly Knoyer speaking with Bradley Setzer, a staff attorney with NC Legal Aid, about the impact of our tight housing market on tenants. We'll be back with more of this conversation in just a moment. I'm Ben Schockman. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom from WHQR. I'm Ben Schockman. Today, we're talking all about housing in the Cape Fear region. Later this hour, we'll dig into some environmental concerns about plans for development in the northern part of the county. 
But right now, we're jumping back in to reporter Kelly Kenoyer's conversation with Bradley Setzer, a staff attorney at NC Legal Aid. You deal a lot with eviction in your line of work. So have you seen any increase in evictions as the housing market has tightened? In Wilmington, I'm going to say this, not as much only because our housing market has been tight for so long that it's hard to see much of a difference. Uh, I've seen more of a difference post-pandemic uh, in large part because you know we, we almost had like an... Uh, a manufactured tenant crisis where there weren't people needing to move. And uh, because of the moratorium on the evictions, uh, people were able to stay longer. Uh, and, and now that that's stopped, uh, suddenly, you know, there's a deluge of displaced tenants who, you know, maybe stayed longer than they should have or would have under normal circumstances, you know, coming into all, all at once into a housing market that, I mean, wasn't prepared to accept them five years ago. And now there's even more of them on on the market looking for places to live. And uh, I, I have seen an increase in evictions on um, probably on non-payment cases more than anything, uh, because as rents go higher, uh, a lot of people, you know, they try to hang on for as long as they can because you don't want to move your family when you don't have a place to move to. Right now, if I've got a roof over my head, even if I can't afford it and I know I'm going to get an eviction for non-payment, I'd rather have my kids in their beds you know, for another couple of weeks than to risk a homeless shelter or living in our car, you know, even if it if it means the eviction, uh, it means not being able to afford where we currently live. You know, it's, you've got to have a roof over your head. Yeah. I want to go back to the tenant's experience and, well, generally the way that this kind of filing works. So how does a landlord go about evicting someone? What's the burden of proof? What does it cost them to file? And if you're a tenant going into this kind of hearing, how should you prepare? And so let's start with uh, the beginning of the process. How does a landlord go to file for an eviction? So you go down to the courthouse and you go to the clerk's office and you file the complaint and summary ejectment. You fill it out. Um, you can pre-type it before you go in there. Uh, put down the information for yourself as a landlord, uh, the tenant's information, you know, why you're evicting them, and then you serve it on the tenant. Uh, you pay a fee. It was 126. It may have gone up. Um, it's in that range. Uh, and once you have filed that, then it goes out to the tenant. You get a court date, and it happens usually within 10 days of the filing. It's a pretty expedited process compared to most other legal cases that get filed. Uh, and so that's that's the first step is just letting the tenant know that you filed something, uh, and then you both get a court date for some time in the near future. So as the tenant, you get this piece of paper. It says exactly why you're being evicted. Say it's for non-payment. Um, what do you do to prepare to go into this hearing? Um, what you do is figure out, you know, what's the validity of these statements that my landlord has made? Are they true? Are they not? Uh, and if they are true, what defenses might I have? If they're not true, how can I prove they're not true? Uh, you asked about the burden of proof. Uh, a lot of folks are used to the criminal statutes of beyond reasonable doubt and, you know, what the heck does that mean? Uh, preponderance of the evidence is the civil standard of proof, and it's the landlord's burden as the plaintiff. And uh, preponderance of the evidence, 50% plus one, and what it boils down to is who does the judge believe? Or, or the magistrate, and I, I keep talking about judges and magistrates. Uh, all evictions in North Carolina, all complaints and summary ejectments start in small claims court. Uh, and if you either side is unhappy with the decision from small claims, 
uh, they can file an appeal up to district court and go in front of a judge instead of a magistrate. But as a tenant, uh, what you're wanting to do is figuring out, you know, how can I prove that my landlord does not have a valid reason to ask for this eviction? And how can I show this magistrate that I'm going to go in front of in a couple of days that either I have paid my rent or, you know, I, I didn't violate my lease in some way or maybe my lease is still ongoing? Um, how do I prove that, you know, just to make them believe me more than they believe my landlord? So here's an example. Uh, one thing that's been very common in Wilmington lately is significant rent increases. And sometimes landlords try to do that in the middle of a lease. Uh, my own landlord tried to raise my rent in the middle of my lease. So, yes, it is for my life, which, as far as I know, is not legal. You cannot raise somebody's rent unilaterally in the middle of a lease. Um, I had four months left until a year was up when this happened. Uh, and I just said, no, you can't do that. And he he backed down. But I have heard of cases where the landlord files an eviction on the basis of that rent being increased, even though the tenant's been paying what the lease says. So what would you do in a situation like that? Um, first thing I do is call legal aid. Uh, you, you could always seek legal counsel uh, and try to find someone. Uh, but if your landlord is trying to increase your rent um, between the terms of a lease, um, what you're going to want to do is, is bring that lease with you to court to show, hey, your honor, you know, according to this, my rent is $500 a month. He's put $750, my landlord put $750 a month on this complaint saying this is what I owe. He has no proof that I owe that. I have paid $500 a month for however many months, here are my receipts. And this is why I believe that my rent should stay 500 because my lease says it's going to be 500 until this date in the future when the lease ends. And if the landlord wants to increase after that, wants to offer that increase, sure, you can do that, you can negotiate. But once that landlord signs the lease, you know, you're bound as the tenant to follow the rules of that lease, but so is your landlord. Your landlord is also required to follow the terms of your lease, including you know, the dates where you get to live in that rental home, uh, but also the amount of money that you have to pay in order to live there. And your landlord can't just come in and say, ah, you know what, change my mind. I think it should go up a little bit more. Is that the case if the ownership of the property has changed, your landlord sold it to somebody else who wants to raise your rent? You go with the property. Uh, When you are a tenant and you have a lease for, um, let's say, an apartment or for a home, if that apartment or home gets sold, Whoever buys it also buys the contracts connected to it, including your lease. So it doesn't really matter who owns it. Uh, If that lease gives you the right to stay, then you've got the right to stay at the term set whenever you first signed it, so long as that lease has not ended. Gotcha. I will say, um, every time I've gone into the courthouse to look at court records, almost every time I overhear a landlord filing for an eviction, almost every single time. Um, I've been into a couple of eviction proceedings, and they happen very quickly. Yes. Um, So one thing that I saw recently was an eviction proceeding where neither party showed up directly on time. One of the parties showed up four minutes late, but they had already had a dismissal. It was already done. How common is that? And if you happen to be a couple minutes late, the elevator's broken, can you appeal? So what happens depends on the party that's late. If you are the plaintiff of a case, you have the burden of proof. If you are late to the hearing and the case, you know, and and they call your name and you're not there, the case gets dismissed because there's no one there on your side to prosecute the case, to say, this is why I think the court should grant it. If you're late as the defendant, if the plaintiff shows up, you don't have the right to defend yourselves. You could lose just by, you know, almost by default as the only person who showed up was the plaintiff. So they're the only one who gets a side 
you know, spoken into evidence. Um, if neither side shows up, you know, it's as if you know the only person not showing up really that, that matters is the plaintiff in that case because they're the ones who get you know the case gets dismissed. Now, either side in small claims court in North Carolina, if either side disagrees with the decision, you know, usually a dismissal of some kind, they have a, a right to file an appeal up to district court. You don't have to explain why you're filing the appeal. You just have to say, "Hey, I want a new trial," and that's what happens. You you file it. Uh, you have to pay a fee unless you qualify as an indigent in North Carolina. Um, so uh, you can qualify for a number of reasons. If you have legal aid or, or some other legal services organization um, whose goal is to serve the low-income folks in the state, uh, you can file as an indigent so you don't have to pay a fee. Um, you can also get it if you have um, EBT, if you have food stamps, if you have certain benefits uh, on disability. So we've talked a lot about um what the impact is on your ability to rent in the future as a tenant, um, how difficult this can be as a process. It's $126 for the landlord to file, um, but it can be a, a difficult scarlet letter on the tenant moving forward. I've heard from housing advocates that eviction filings have become more common as a form of intimidation against tenants, um, especially in some of those cases like we discussed where they are seeking a rent increase because of the very hot housing market. Have you seen very much of that happening? Personally, no. Uh, most cases that come in, uh, at least to our office here in Legal Aid, are cases where the landlord maybe has a little bit of a justification for why they're filing. You know, it can be a stretch. Uh, I've had tenants, you know, evicted because of, of cleanliness issues where it was just clutter. Uh, and those are frustrating, but you can also kind of understand where the landlord's coming from. Um, you will often see the, you know, filing as an intimidation tactic when uh, you know, if a landlord wants to remove wholesale a lot of people, maybe it was sold and they don't have a really good reason to evict someone. Uh, or, or maybe it's, um, you know, just a tenant. Maybe you're subsidized housing and you, you're just looking for any reason you can to, to evict someone when you otherwise wouldn't have a right to. And you're trying to intimidate them to move out because people don't want the eviction on their record. And it's, it becomes a, uh, you know, a risk analysis. You know, I know that I'm in the right and I could win in court, but also I might get a judge on a bad day or maybe my car breaks down. I don't make it to court on time and I lose anyway. And the question becomes, you know, is, is it even worth it to fight if I can find an alternate place to live? Uh, so you don't see it, I think, as often as you, you might expect because it does cost money and time for the landlord to file. And for a lot of landlords, you know, Money is the most important thing. They don't want to lose money or filing something they know they won't win on. But you do see it. Uh, and it's very frustrating because a lot of tenants, they don't know. They don't understand that they have rights or they, um, or the fear is, is very legitimate if, you know, they have family, if they have kids who live with them uh, who could be negatively impacted for years down the road if the eviction is possibly granted. And uh, so, I mean, to answer your question, like you, you do see it. I don't see it quite as often as I might expect. Landlords are people too. Uh, a lot of landlords just you know want to do the right thing, and I find that most of them will file for largely the right reasons. If maybe they're a little misguided, um, but you do you do see it as something I can't deny that that happens. Uh, and when it does, you just do your best as a as an advocate to help the tenant understand what are the benefits, what are the risks, and is it worth it to fight in court? And you know what are the or the options. That's that's the best thing we can tell people is, uh, is often like, what are your options on what to do and what's the best way forward? It's just to help you know show them what the paths are and then let them choose which path they want to go down. Are there any other misconceptions about eviction that you want to help people understand better? 
my biggest pet peeve is the um, is people not understanding that notices to vacate are not evictions. You get a lot of people who become nihilistic when they get the notice to vacate, and they say, "Ah, oh, it's already over. I've gotten the notice. I'm I'm done. The, uh, there's nothing I can do." I was like, "Oh, you know, hold, hold on a second. You know, the notice to vacate is is almost like a you know a, an ask, a request from your landlord that says, "Hey, it's not working out. Please leave." And you have the right to say no. You have the right to say, like, nah, you got to prove it in court. And a lot of tenants, you know, when I first talked to them, I've, I've started prefacing it by, hey, you know, before we go any further, I want you to know that you have not been evicted yet. There's not an eviction on your record. This is how an eviction happens. This is what the courts will need to do before you can actually say that you have an eviction on your record. And once they understand that, they can take a deep breath, pause for a moment. It's like, okay, now what can we do? And it's it's not overreacting to that initial notice or those lease violations that you get and understanding that your landlord can just toss those notices to vacate you at you. It's not until there's a court filing that things get, you know, to the point where something is going could wind up on your record. Hmm. One thing I've heard is that corporate landlords are a lot more likely to file evictions really quickly compared to kind of the mom and pop landlords that we have a lot of in this town. Um, is that something you've seen? Like a lot of corporate evictions? So you know how I said landlords are people too? You know, Citizens United, notwithstanding, uh, mom and pop landlords are more more people-ish than a lot of corporations are. Uh, the corporations, um, I'll get this sometimes, I'll get a case in and it'll be, you know, a good case for my clients, bad case for the landlord. But that landlord, you know, is a property manager somewhere who who understands and cares about the people they're working with, but they've got some regional manager or some corporate boardroom somewhere who's crunched the numbers and decided, hey, this person's got to go. Uh, and their hands can sometimes be tied. Um, I, I once had a case where it was, they just kept filing. Like we kept beating them in court and they just kept filing. And I eventually got a hold of the property manager and I was like, hey, you know, what gives? She was like, you know, it's, it's my higher ups. They keep making me, will you talk to them? So I talked to the higher ups and they were like, oh, okay, we understand now. And because it's all numbers to them, and these aren't people they live with. And what you see with mom and pop landlords is that they actually, you know, they'll go personally pick up the rent. Uh, or these are people that you know from your community. It can be friends, family that you've known for years, or just people that you you gain a connection with. And it's harder to evict someone that you care about. Not impossible. I've seen it tons of times. But you know, the the further removed you are as a business from the people you're working with the more likely you are not to see the human side of things and the more likely you are not to recognize what the eviction, you know, that impact it could have on a family and the more likely you are to say that the money is the only thing that matters. Uh, so, yeah, the more corporations own these housing, I mean, it's anecdotal mostly. I don't have, you know, the you know verification of, of looking at the numbers. But from what I have seen as a legal aid attorney is, yeah, the more corporations get evolved, the more likely you are to get an eviction because – they're not willing to look at all the other aspects of a person's life. They're just going to look at the numbers. So you said earlier, if someone's being evicted, to reach out to NC Legal Aid. Um, who do you help? How do they get in contact with you if they need you? Uh, so you can call Legal Aid at our helpline, uh, 1-866-219-5262. Uh, that is our helpline. You can also just go to LegalAidNC.org uh, and you can look up. Uh, we have numbers for various projects that we work on. We don't just do housing. We do a lot of domestic violence work. Uh, we can help folks with bankruptcy. Uh, if you're getting benefits of some kind, disability benefits, veterans benefits, and you have an issue with that, we do have folks that can assist. Uh, we have a senior law project that can help with wills. Um, 
up with some uh, directive stuff with end of life uh, decisions. Uh, just a lot of stuff that we can help with. And if we can't help you, uh, we can try and point you in the right direction. Uh, we do have income limits. Uh, so, uh, folks have to be uh, you know, above a certain level of the poverty line um, or below that line uh, in order to get our assistance. But you won't know until you call us. A lot of folks don't even realize they qualify. Uh, and so they never call us until maybe it's too late. Uh, but I encourage anyone who is having housing issues, anyone who's having a legal issue, a civil legal issue, not criminal, we don't handle criminal, uh, you can at least contact us and we can see what there is that we can do, we can help with. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Bradley Setzer from NC Legal Aid for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. That was my colleague Kelly Knoyer speaking to Bradley Setzer with NC Legal Aid. Coming up after a quick break, we'll talk about the Island Creek watershed, which covers northeastern New Hanover County, where a particular kind of soil could make development tricky and costly. I'm Ben Schockman. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman. Earlier this year, the New Hanover Soil and Water Conservation District endorsed a white paper calling for the protection of the Island Creek watershed that covers nearly 12,000 acres in northeastern New Hanover County and parts of southern Pender County. The watershed will soon be bisected by the military cutoff extension, and the county recently invested federal COVID relief funds into supporting water and sewer lines nearby. In other words, development is almost definitely on the way. Now, the region has some pretty impressive biodiversity, which is reason enough for some to want to protect the area. But this white paper, authored by conservation biologist Andy Wood and geology professor Roger Shu, makes another case for thinking carefully about how and how much to develop the Island Creek watershed. It has to do with the type of soil, specifically something called hydric soils, that don't absorb stormwater the way other ground does. So where rainwater might drain off of roads and develop land elsewhere, in parts of Ogden and Porter's Neck, the water runs in sheets over the ground, pooling and causing flooding. This was especially notable after Hurricane Florence, but it can be bad after just an afternoon thundershower. This has real implications for safety and even the financial viability of development in the region. Now, the white paper is not binding, but its authors and the Soil and Water District hope it will give county commissioners something to think about when they think about how the northern part of the county will look in the future. Okay, Andy Wood and Roger Shu, can you guys introduce yourself? Andy Wood, Director of Coastal Plain Conservation Group. Roger Shu, uh, UNC Wilmington, uh, Department of uh, Earth and Ocean Sciences and Environmental Sciences. All right, and you are the co-authors of a white paper about this region in the northeast uh, part of New Hanover County. Tell me a little bit about that. The white paper came out um, as a, a way to educate residents and our policymakers and planners about the nuances of one of the last best intact pieces of this area's natural ecoregion. Uh, southeastern North Carolina is 
part of the Atlantic Coastal Plain ecoregion, a biodiversity hotspot with over 1,500 species of plants. But we have lost more than 70% of our natural habitat, making it a hotspot. And so this white paper is really just an informative piece to help people understand what is at stake for future residents and visitors if we lose this prime example of what makes this place special. So we've been waiting for basically this avalanche of development in the northern part of the county. There are some people who would object to this simply because it's a beautiful place and seems like a shame to bulldoze it and pave it over. But there's also some concerns about what's called hydric soils. And you guys had to explain this to me, so I'm not going to pretend to be the expert. But Roger, if you could explain a little bit, what is, what is hydric soil? So a hydric soil is a soil that seasonally or all during the year is saturated with water and is a soil that supports hydrophytic vegetation, which means that it's water-loving plants like bald cypress and others that we all know of. Most of our hydric soils then are going to be ones that are poorly to very poorly drained, so their water is not going to infiltrate very rapidly. You would have runoff of the water in those areas. You're looking at somewhere around 80% of the soils in that area are hydric soils. So this becomes important when we talk about managing stormwater. And for the last four or five years, we've been hearing about profound flooding in Ogden and Porter's Neck, but also other other places around the region that maybe on paper, given how much of the space is physically paved over, there's a physical building with a roof there, and how much is you know open space with grass or trees, it, it should be draining better than it is. And this seems to have confounded the county a little bit. Can you talk about like what's going on here? Well, one of the things that happens with uh, impervious areas, um, developed areas, obviously the water can't infiltrate. So the water runs off. So it's a difference between an upland area that has you know water that can infiltrate, a well-drained soil, like some of the ones that are up there, there are some that are uh, well-drained up in the area, versus those areas that would be adjacent to those developed areas, those impervious surfaces where you have hydric soils, now you're trying to put that water from the house or the roadway into a wet soil that's not infiltrating. And without having enough soils that can hold that water uh, as it runs off with the sheet flow or runoff that you're having, then that water is going to pile up on the wetland and back up into the subdivisions. And we see this over and over again. And so one of the things that you look at in this particular area is another thing that is terribly wrong with development where you clear cut is that trees actually you know, accentuate the infiltration uh, also. And so if you look at an area, in fact, North Carolina DEQ has a little stat that they use. In a forested area, 90% of the water will infiltrate. If you go into a developed area, you're looking at 25 to 50% that's going to infiltrate. And the wetland soil is going to do pretty much the same thing. So you need that balance of undeveloped versus developed areas and high density development is something in a wetland dominated area that's going to be a problem. 
Okay, I want to talk about the costs of this because New Hanover County does have a stormwater management division, which is charging residents to handle this. But there's also the much there's also the much more expensive process of state and federal agencies buying out property that's been damaged or threatened by flooding. Can you talk a little bit about this? Well, it, houses built in areas that are prone to flooding and the most um, notable are in rural parts of, in, in our area, rural parts of Pender County that were um, flooded a second and third time uh, along the Black, Black River, Northeast Cape Fear River and others. And those are being bought out right now, but not necessarily at fair market value. Um, they're, they're getting really not anywhere near top dollar. So yeah, FEMA may pay somebody $50,000 for their three acres on the Black River, but that's not enough for them to move away and find somewhere else to live. Um, so that it's not a great solution, but that is what's going on. At some point, insurance companies and banks are going to realize this is a little more risky than we thought it was going to be when they see pictures of Ogden after Florence and see that the soils underlying Ogden subdivision are identical to the soils in Island Creek, and we're basically replicating a flood situation in another part of the county. As Roger said, these are poorly draining soils that, that pond. The, the water can't percolate into the soil, so they pond up and flood homes. Yeah, there's one thing to add to that in that in the Unified Development Ordinance, it actually talks about a certain amount of land set aside, like 10% of that area to be set aside. It turns out, though, that when you're dominated by wetland soils, you really should have much larger percentage of designated areas that's not built upon. Roger, you've actually suggested that we have kind of a half-day session with county commissioners and other stakeholders to kind of look at some potential solutions to this. You link major habitats, you promote the region through its natural resources, you address concerns related to water quality, water supply, and conservation issues, and you preserve open space for their natural beauty and the critical environmental areas that are prone to flooding. Doesn't that sound like Island Creek area and much of North northern New Hanover County. I just ask that we revisit all these things to actually make another look and a comprehensive look. Uh, we, get, we get away from things four years down the road and we kind of forget. So it's time to bring us back and have that half-day session. And the thing I want to I end on is, Andy, what you were saying about equitable ethical representation on these planning boards, which I can understand why the government would want people familiar with de development on these boards, but you have suggested uh, that maybe there be a bit of diversity on those boards. We need somebody with uh, science-based knowledge of environmental issues, whether it's climate or hydrology, um, water, um, just a broader understanding of matters environmental. Um, we're in one of a very vulnerable, environmentally vulnerable location for the country, um, not just with hurricanes and flooding, but, uh, well, yes, hurricanes and flooding primarily. Um, so we need somebody who can bring 
unbiased, science-based information for people to think about. It's not an environmental uh, conservation educator's job. It's not our job to tell people what to think. It's our job to provide information for people to think about. And right now, the only advice in those echo chambers of the planning board and county commission is coming from developers, realtors, and attorneys for developers and realtors. There's my voice isn't there. Roger's voice isn't there. And any number of other uh, community environmentalists' voices, they're not there. We get three minutes at a meeting, if we're lucky, if we're allowed to speak for three minutes. And yet developers from Houston get hours and hours of time with the planning staff at, at our dime. We're paying for that. And so, yeah, equitable, equitable and ethical representation would be a good idea. I mean, you, you want to get medical information from a doctor. You want to get environmental information from an environmental scientist. All right. Well, that seems like a good place to leave it. Uh, Andy Wood, Roger Shu, thank you both. Thank Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of the Newsroom. Thanks to Kelly Kinoyer and our guests, Bradley Setzer, Andy Wood, and Roger Shu. Thanks also to our WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org or as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or an idea for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.